Media outlets all over the world today declare Joe Biden president-elect of the United States of America again. <laughs> like, is this over yet? Is it ever going to be over? When will we know? That's what tonight's show is about. The Cozy Robot Show. Hey, Cozy Robots. I'm Mike McCarg doing the intro a second time. Because of technical problems, this is the Cozy Robot Show. It's a live web streaming program that we also release as a podcast. It's about empathetic skepticism. That is getting to know our feelings and learning to think critically and learning to do both at the same time, which we think is really, really special. Like every week, we're going to have an after party tonight. You can join us on our Discord server. Just go to CozyRobots.com to learn how. And uh, before we get into talking about politics and why we're going to talk about politics and if we should even care if we're going to talk about politics tonight, I wanted to take a moment to talk about the show itself and the way it gets made. Um, when I was a kid, I remember starting about fourth grade, our teachers would tell us about the masks we all wear in the world. They'd say, well, you know, you have one mask you wear with your friends, another mask you wear with your parents, you have another mask you wear with teachers, and have you noticed you put these different masks on? And part of learning to be you is learning not to wear masks. And I remember being so confused by that idea because I definitely knew that I wore masks. Uh, I had to make really elaborate masks to fit in with people. At the time, I didn't know that I had autism spectrum disorder, but now I know I'm an adult with autism. And I spend incredible energy trying to fit in with people and trying to communicate with people. It does not come naturally to me, which is funny because I actually think <clears throat> I'm a pretty skilled communicator, but it's because I put a ton of work into it. And here's why that matters to this show. The way I make media is I study. I study what other people do and the kind of informative and emotional experience it creates with an audience. And when we were planning the Cozy Robot Show, which we've been planning for a long time, we were going to make it in a, po a world with no pandemic. There was going to be a soundstage, and there was going to be an audience, and there were going to be guests that were there in person, and there were going to be segments involving other people. And, uh, well, you know, then COVID-19 arrived. And we had to figure out how to make this show um, with a team. There's a lot of people involved in the Cozy Robot Show, but with me being the host of the show and uh, operating the show, I run all the transitions for the program as it runs. I'm the show's technical engineer, so when we have little technical problems, I'm the host and the person who set up all the technical stuff, and it's hard to do both. Here's why I'm telling you that. I so desperately try to search for the personality of the program, not the personality of me. I know who I am at this point, but the little decisions that go into how we share this space together, you know, and when I look at media that I find really, really emotive and powerful and informative, I think of things like last week tonight with John Oliver or the readout with Joy Reid, where intelligent people look directly into a camera and talk and they've got graphics and they've got transition slides and it's a relatively stripped down production. I thought we could duplicate that with me at my house and frankly, we have pretty well considering our resources. But my background, where a lot of you all know me, is in podcasting. Podcasting is a very different media. 
I don't know if you've noticed, podcasts tend to be longer than YouTube videos. That's just part of the media. They also tend to be really informal. You tune into a podcast generally to hear people that you like talk often to each other. They don't this often what they're talking about is less important than the kind of parasocial, semi-social, pseudo-social experience you have being part of a conversation with people you like, respect, and admire. And I just want you to know that I'm working on that tension every week between media that I really value because it's informative, it's educational, and it's helpful, that is video media, and then my background, which is a lot more informal and a lot more conversational. And every week I'm trying to turn that dial to see what works best with you. And I just wanted to start before we get into electoral politics tonight by saying thank you. Thank you for being patient and supportive and encouraging as we try to work all this stuff out. And boy, gosh, we spend a lot of time every week trying to figure out how to make this show the absolute best that we can make it for you. So thanks for being along for the experiment. And hopefully it will get better and better with fewer and fewer technical challenges as we go along. And if it does not, we'll just continue to have fun together either way. So uh, with that, uh, let's kind of get into the show tonight. <clears throat> so here we are again in this weird Groundhog Day pattern, hearing that Joe Biden is the president-elect. The media saying, absolutely, this time for sure, Joe Biden is the president-elect. At the same time, the current president, Donald Trump, is saying, no, <laughs> I'm still going to fight. This isn't over. Today, Donald Trump actually said it's not over until January 20th. Most Democrats, in fact, all Democrats say Joe Biden is the president-elect. Most media agrees. Some media, especially very far-right media, disagrees. Lots of Republican political leaders won't say one way or the other who the president-elect is or who they support. And I know this is confusing and overwhelming because you all ask me about it. I get so many questions via social media and in your cards and letters, which I do read when you send them to my P.O. box, um, that you really don't know what to believe. It seems like the normal thing that happens every four years in the United States, there's an election and it's heated and we all debate and we all you know, get stickers and put signs in our yards and there's a process. It seems like it's getting less and less predictable and kind of hit this inflection point this year of all years, 2020. Oh my gosh. So before we kind of get into the political and legal framework of how we know who the president is and what could happen at this point, I kind of want to start about something more basic, like why are we talking about politics on a show about empathetic skepticism? You know, I, I pushed for this show. I, I started this show so we could talk about mental health and so we could talk about critical thinking. We could talk about how to create a better world together. And a lot of you would say, well, what does politics have to do about that? Mike, I love it when you talk about feelings. Mike, I love it when you talk about science. Why do you keep talking about politics? And I keep talking about politics not just because people ask me about politics, though they do. I want to talk about politics because I want you to care about politics. 
I want you to be politically active. And it doesn't matter if you agree with my politics or not. Statistically, it is unlikely that you do. I am my political beliefs are a small minority of this country. I am passionate about politics because politics matter. Politics are how we make decisions about how society will be organized, about who goes to prison versus who goes free, about who gets to live where and how much they'll pay, about what standards of safety we will uphold industry to, about where our children will go to school or what kind of roads we will drive on or what drives on those roads in the first place. Politics affects every single point in our lives. There is not a point in your life utterly free of the influence of politics. And I bet many of you, like me, were raised in a culture where talking about politics was in some way taboo because political conversations can be uncomfortable. And as I'm growing older, I'm learning how important it is that we have conversations that make us uncomfortable, that sitting in a bubble of comfort is not only bad for society, but unhealthy for us. I am passionate about politics and really uninterested in partisanship. And I think one reason that we get so disaffected and cynical about politics in the United States is because of the outsized role our two political parties play. And so I just want to name something. I'm a reluctant Democratic voter because I'm a passionate progressive. I'm in some ways leaning towards outright leftism. The Democrats don't represent me or the values I think are important. I think they're wildly neoliberal, pro-corporate, um, milk toast, largely white politicians who've been in office too long. The reason I tend to vote for Democrats so often is because what I see happening with Republicans absolutely terrifies me. We're entering into an age of extreme political polarization. And what I want to explore together when we talk about politics on the Cozy Robot Show is not whether Republicans or Democrats are better, but who benefits when Republicans and Democrats polarize the electorate because it's not the electorate. With all the talks we're having about Donald Trump right now, does anybody feel happy or flourishing? Does anyone feel like you as a voter are being paid attention to? I'm pretty tired of talking about politicians. I'd rather talk about politics, the decisions we make together about how to organize our society. I'd like to decenter politicians and recenter citizens and voters and residents of a given country. And so it's that kind of framing I'd like to bring to tonight's discussion about who the heck is the president right now. Um, and I'd also like to encourage you, as I talk, any questions you have, pop them in the chat because Victory and other members of the Cozy Robot team are going to be reading along with your comments tonight and assembling questions that we'll answer together, explore together in the second half of the program. Now, a few weeks ago, 
I talked about the history of the Electoral College, and I'm not going to rehash how we got to the Electoral College, because we've already done that. That was a long episode. You can go back and watch or listen if you'd so like. But I would like to offer a refresher right now of how the United States selects a president. And we won't do that in a hypothetical sense. We'll look at that through the lens of 2020. So if you remember way back November 3rd, 150 years ago, November 3rd, 2020, people voted. They either voted by mail or voted in person in a process that was administered by local election supervisors and board of elections. Those election supervisors and board of elections were empowered by state governments. Those state governments were operating elections with the powers granted to them by the Constitution of the United States. The Constitution gives massive latitude to states and how they administer their elections. So when we look at the Electoral College, we want to admit, constitutionally, states have a lot of freedom in how they assign electors. Remember, votes haven't always been taken publicly to assign state electors for president. Popular votes haven't always mattered. And some states are winner-take-all, first-past-the-post style. Most states are. And then other states split their electors based on districts of their state, which I frankly think is a better way of doing things. So everyone voted November 3rd, and then those votes were counted. They were tallied. They were checked once, checked twice. In many cases, there were recounts and audits and a complicated process to make sure the votes are the votes are the votes, that the numbers match up, that the winner really is the winner. And then the states, all on their own schedules, certified the results of the election with only one kind of common thread that all states want to get their certifications done by December the 8th, which is the so-called safe harbor deadline, which allows them to maintain kind of sovereign control over their elections. Once uh, state votes are certified, they are difficult, very, 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 very difficult to change. They're also protected from a lot of legal challenges, although there were many. The Trump campaign engaged in a broad legal strategy of challenging the state counts before they were certified. Those results were largely unsuccessful in courts, including in courts where there were Trump-appointed judges. Many of Trump's lawsuits were thrown out for being baseless, without merit, uh, or having no sufficient evidence to back up their claims. The claims were serious, the courts would admit, but the evidence wasn't there to validate the claims. Okay, so that's a big deal. And all 50 states did, in fact, certify their elections by December the 8th. At which point, the Trump administration engaged in a very strange strategy of trying to lobby with state legislatures to elect or select electors who would vote against what the state's uh, certified vote totals were. A process that is, um, I think many legal scholars would say is illegal and certainly, if not illegal, pushing the boundary of what is and is not legal in an election. And all of that led to a very significant day, which is today. It's why we're doing this episode. Today is the day the Electoral College voted. And all 50 states by now, Hawaii came in just before the show, have voted. 
Now, what's interesting is there was a lot of fear and suspense about what would happen today as the Electoral College voted. Because 33 states require, 33 states and territories, require that their um, electors vote for the winner of the popular vote in that state. That's, that's, that's a matter of law. 17 states, the electors are bound only by tradition and decorum, which introduces a, a concept known as a faithless elector. If an elector in the electoral college votes for someone other than who their state's popular or proportion popular vote total went to, that calls them a faithless elector. And there were a lot of eyes today. You know, it was very strange to watch vote totals tallying in media on elect electoral college day. This is usually something that no one pays any attention to. <laughs> it's like no one pays attention to electoral college. Uh, I guess maybe, you know, last time, 2016, there was some attention because a lot of people on the left hoped that electors wouldn't vote for Trump. They were hoping faithless electors would turn the election, and they did not. And today, there were no faithless electors. Every elector voted as they were proportioned to in the Electoral College. This is a big deal. This is why you're seeing the media talk again, because we had the big kind of fight about when the uh, government, the GSA, the Government Services Administration, would designate an apparent president-elect to unlock funding and resources and briefings for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris as they moved towards um, taking office. But once the electoral college votes, you go from having an apparent president-elect to like a president-elect. <laughs> this, is, this, is, this is a weighty day. Um, so we might want to say, pat ourselves on the back and say, finally, it's over. Okay. Joe Biden is the president Thank goodness, don't have to think about it anymore, but not quite. There is two more major moments in the election of an American president. First is January the 6th. And on January the 6th, the Congress, both houses, the Senate and the House of Repu Republicans, House of Republicans, maybe in 2022, the House of Representatives, the Senate and the House of Representatives get together for a joint session of Congress presided over by the president of the Senate, who is also the vice president of the United States. So on January, the vice president of the USA. So on January 6th, Mike Pence will preside over a joint session of Congress. And on that day, Congress will certify the results of the election. There will be a certification on January the 6th. And I say that with certainty because the law states, constitutional law states, the session of Congress that begins on this January the 6th cannot end until the results are tallied and declared. No one can go home. No one can leave. That session goes until the job is done. So I don't expect a lot of gridlock there. And this is usually a uh, very uh, pomp and circumstance formal process uh, with no changes to what happens. However, there is a mechanism on January the 6th that the election results can be challenged. And we are seeing uh, an or, uh, a movement among uh, Republican members of the House of Representatives to 
basically file a complaint. So what happens is the votes are read aloud and tallied, all the certified votes from the Electoral College. And then there's an opportunity. There's not floor debate, but a member of the House can file a written objection to a state's vote totals after the vote tallies are read with the caveat that a senator has to co-sign the objection. If that happens, that requires a member of the House and a member of the Senate, then the two houses, the Senate and the House of Republicans, separate and they go debate for up to two hours. Each member of uh, each respective House of Congress can speak, I think, for up to five minutes. And then they vote the complaint up or down. Is this complaint valid? Is it not? It requires both houses to affirm an objection for the objection to move forward. And I'm just going to give you a spoiler alert. It's very unlikely that a Democratic-controlled House of Representatives with a Nancy Pelosi performing her duties as Speaker of the House is going to pass an objection to the votes, to the vote certification. Um, so it, it, I expect it's possible the, – I wouldn't say that it's likely because it's going to be hard to get a senator to sign on, but it's possible there will be a written challenge. If there is, here's what I'm telling you about this tonight. Don't panic. It's actually not that uncommon for these objections to be filed, largely, you know, as a symbolic gesture. Democrats have three times since 2000 have used this mechanism to file some form of complaint in conjunction with an election. It becomes a part of congressional record. Um, so January the 6th, the vote is certified. And then after that, all that's left for Joe Biden to become the president is the inauguration. At noon on January 20th, 2020, assuming the vote is certified and there's absolutely no reason to believe that it will not be certified, Joe Biden will become the president of the United States and Donald Trump will cease to be the president of the United States. There's no legal path left other than this challenge on January 6th for Donald Trump to remain the president of the United States. Now, I said legal path. History is clear. There are other paths to power besides legal ones. We could experience a coup, an actual coup, even a violent coup. But I, I, I think that's unlikely at this point. What I think is happening now is Donald Trump's going to leave office. He's going to leave office by, on, or before January the 20th. But as he leaves, he's going to spend incredible time and energy questioning the legitimacy of the Biden administration and sowing basic distrust in the democratic process in America because that serves Donald Trump's interests. I don't actually think that serves Republican interests. I don't think it serves the interests of the people who voted for Donald Trump. But Donald Trump doesn't care about any of those things. I believe sincerely that Donald Trump does not care about his voters other than that they adore him and give him validation and power and send him money as he asks for it in his political campaigning. Donald Trump has realized that if he just keeps campaigning, he can keep asking for donations and fund an organization, political organization, that then hires his businesses to do things and enriches his pockets. He likes fame. He likes attention. 
And so I don't think Donald Trump is going away. He's going to leave office. He's not going to go away. And this is a grave situation, I want to be honest. Trump's incredible popularity among most Republican voters means that it's politically dangerous for Republicans to call out Trump's nonsense. And this is not a partisan statement. I'll remind you, I'm not a fan of the DNC. It's a political reality, friends. Our republic is in peril. As tattered and antiquated as it is, I mean, this country has a horrific past it is not reconciled with. Our legal processes are built around the time it takes horses to get ballots to Washington, D.C. I mean, <laughs> we're a creaky foundation to begin with. But the deterioration of the American political institutions, when combined with our global clout, our military power, and the incredible strength of our police apparatus and justice system, it makes me concerned what a country with the resources we have will do when untethered from even a notion of the rule of law. My concern is that Joe Biden is absolutely going to be the president on January the 20th, and the health of our republic is at the lowest point it's been since the Civil War, and that's bad for everyone. That's bad for me. That's bad for you. That's bad for undocumented immigrants. That's bad for native-born citizens. That's bad for Trump voters and Biden voters and people who didn't vote at all. Because making changes to politics through elections is a great innovation in human society. We haven't always decided who was in control of a, a society's government or who had the power, but even before we called it governments, using ballots. We used to do it with... Uh, rocks and swords and guns and guillotines. And I think it's best for everyone that we stick to ballots. And that means restoring trust in the process by which we select political leaders. So we got a lot more to talk about. We're going to take your questions kind of after the break. But for now, uh, let's talk about our sponsors. I just love KiwiCo. They're one of the sponsors of the Cozy Robot Show, and they create hands-on projects for kids and adults of all ages that make learning about STEAM fun. Now, I don't mean the stuff that comes out of your kettle. I mean science, technology, engineering, art, and math. KiwiCo is, is um, an amazing service because it's physical. It's tangible. When you sign up for KiwiCo, you get a crate in the mail every month as part of a subscription. Those can be centered around more of a science or engineering discipline or more of an art discipline or a blend of the two. They're age appropriate and they are simply amazing. And in a refreshing change from our lived experience, Whenever you get a KiwiCo box, they come with all the supplies you need to do that month's project. There's no extra runs to the store, and they have detailed, kid-friendly instructions. Uh, we have KiwiCo subscriptions in my house. We do a ton of them. We give a ton of crates away, and I also see your pictures when you share them on social media. I know these are things kids can actually do on their own and have a blast doing. They learn 
and they gain a sense of independence and accomplishment. They're totally wonderful. And with KiwiCo's hands-on art and science projects, kids can engineer a walking robot, design a paint pendulum, conduct bubbling and chemistry experiments, and more, all from the comfort of home. So everything you need to make STEAM seriously fun can be delivered right to your doorstep, and you'll get 50% off your first month at kiwico.com and use promo code COZYROBOTS. Again, that's kiwico.com. Use promo code Cozy Robots. And as you are getting creative, why not pursue improved mental health as well? Well, our friends over at BetterHelp can help you do that. You can join the over 1 million people taking charge of their mental health by working with licensed mental health professionals and counselors in the easiest and most convenient way. It's perfectly adapted to this era of social distancing because you connect with your counselor via text, chat, call, and video. And you work with a licensed expert that, that BetterHelp finds for you. When you go to the website and fill out a questionnaire and they figure out what issues and challenges you're facing in life, they will find a therapist that specializes right in the exact thing that you're struggling with. I use it every day. And you get 10% off your first month service by going to betterhelp.com slash cozy robots. Okay, this is the time of the show where we'd like to uh, answer some audience questions and uh, explore them together. The things I don't know, I'll tell you I don't know, and we'll just explore everything together. So Eric Bond asks, how many elected officials will keep mostly quiet about a coup attempt and wondering what accountability will be faced by the outgoing regime and its white supremacist minions? Okay, Eric Bond <laughs> bringing the thunder with question one. Do you know why I want to talk about politics? Because I want you all to get politically active. I don't care if you're a Republican or a Democrat or a Libertarian or a centrist. I want you to get politically active. Why? Because I want people who care about how society is structured and how our policies impact people to be involved in the process. So when people who care are involved early, forget by the time we're talking about the president, all the important stuff has already been decided, y'all. Do you know how much influence primary voters have? The people who show up not to general elections, but primary elections, especially like midterm primary elections and local races. If you're that kind of voter and you call a candidate for office, they will listen to anything you want to tell them. They will continue to talk to you once they're in office because you wield an incredible amount of power. And I'm not saying this to dodge Eric's question. I'm saying this because the reason officials are quiet about what's happening in our government right now is they're scared of active voters. A lot of people who vote in primary midterm elections on the Republican side adore Donald Trump. And so these officials are afraid if they get called out by Trump for being insufficiently loyal, they'll get a primary challenge and they'll lose their job. And one thing I've learned in my time talking to elected officials, both as a private citizen and 
when I get brought in by special causes to go and lobby elected officials is most of our politicians primarily care about winning their next election. So the kind of lack of moral conviction we're seeing, you know, we had all these, what, 137 members of the House uh, sign on to this kind of ridiculous lawsuit led by the Attorney General of Texas. What in the world? They, they knew this thing wasn't going to go anywhere. Why would they sign off on this? Because it's just a signal to voters. I actually don't know that most Democrats have some deeper sense of moral clarity than your run-of-the-mill Republican. You know, when we say both parties are the same, I hate that notion because um, especially recently that just hasn't been true. One party is a lukewarm, corporate-friendly kind of American institution, and the other is (laughs) trying to install a white nationalist totalitarian regime in the country. That's not the same. But the -the run-of-the-mill people, they don't think about those big issues. If they do, they don't really talk about them. What they think about is getting back in office again. So I need my viewers and listeners of good moral conscience who are conservative to show up and talk to their elected officials and say, listen, I'm a lifelong Republican. And if you keep doing this anti-democratic small d, not Democratic Party, but if you keep working against the democratic principles of how elections happen in this country, I'm going to support a primary challenger. Heck, I might run against you in the next election. Our elections will only, our officials will only show us moral courage if we demand it. And if we get involved politically and start putting people in office with a spine, like whether or not you like the policies of AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, you have to admit she's got a sense of moral clarity. She's got a strong moral compass. She says what she means and she backs that up with votes. She articulates her positions and whether or not it's politically advantageous for her. She does what she thinks is right. I want more of that. I'd love to see rising stars in the GOP who have a sense of moral conviction and courage, even if I disagree with every single policy they make. I think of uh, Justin Amash, I think his name is, from Michigan, a Republican. Gosh, wildly conservative Policies I genuinely find concerning and troubling. But he looked at what was happening in the age of Trump, and he said, I, I can't do this. I can't be a Republican. Had another Republican today come out and say, look, I can't be a Republican anymore. So a lot of elected officials are going to keep quiet. And even if a coup attempt got more intent, they would stay quiet because they want to see who's going to win and draft off winners. In terms of accountability that's going to be faced by the outgoing regime, I have no idea. Gosh, I have no idea. I certainly think part of the failing and how we got to where we are, corruption is really rampant in American politics. It's getting more so. And I think that's because, um, well, the foxes administer the the chicken coop. 
<laughs> they're not going to put a lock on it, right? Um, you know, we pardoned Nixon. I think we've been sending a signal to politicians for a while that anything goes, and we're okay with it. Like, the Federal Elections Commission, the FEC that oversees elections, doesn't have enough people on it to have a quorum, meaning it's difficult to um, administer election laws. Like, why are we as a population allowing that? And this is complicated. I do think that people in the Trump administration should be held legally accountable for any laws they've broken. Notice I didn't say they should go to jail. I don't know if they should go to jail. There should be an investigation. And if the investigation finds wrongdoing, there should be an indictment. And after the indictment, there should be a trial. And if they're convicted of wrongdoing, then they should pay a legal penalty. But we have to be careful. I don't want Joe Biden calling for prosecution of any Trump administration because that's not how we do it in a civil society. We don't, we don't have the new guy go after the old person. And I said guy in this case because it's Biden and Trump. I really wish we had a woman president. But the, the, these are decisions we, we, we're allowing to happen, and we have to be careful. We want justice to be administered equally and fairly. And so what I want to see happen is the Department of Justice restored to an independent relationship with the chief executive. The chief executive should not be saying who is prosecuted and who is not. And I would like to see a restored independent non-corrupt Justice Department look at the evidence and make their own decisions. Um, now, if nothing happens at the federal level, we could see a situation where uh, New York State ends up indicting and prosecuting Trump and members of the Trump family. But I don't know. We'll just have to wait and see uh, what happens. But I do think the accountability is important. And I also think it's equally important that that kind of accountability is not politically motivated. Okay? Great. Next question is from Irewolf. I think on Twitter, I see an at sign. Assuming 45 is rightfully evicted on January 20th, his supporters, um, politicians and otherwise, are still around. Where do we go from here? How do we move forward when it seems half the country is an insane cult that proclaims the election was stolen? This is hard, y'all. When we continue to talk about politics in the future on the show, I have a, a number of episodes planned where I want to talk about the two-party system and the problems it creates. And one of those problems we're in the middle of right now, right? Um, this, this notion that half the country is an insane cult. The problem right now is both halves of the country believe that about the other half. Now, I'm not both sides. I'm not equating those as equally justifiable positions. But in a, a republic where votes determine who leaders are and leaders create policy, the total breakdown of any understanding, any shared sense of purpose is terrifying. Um, I, you know, I've lost a lot of sleep over this notion of like, you know, 36% of the country right now, 36% thinks the election results are illegitimate. That's a very high number. 
Those numbers, if you look at historical precedents, precedents are extremely concerning. They speak to grave instability in the near future, um, next few years. I mean, our republic, when I said it in the first half of the show, is in grave danger. I mean it. So what do we do? We have to restore some common sense of purpose. Like, we can disagree on policy. We should disagree on policy. Remember, I'm a progressive, left-leaning person. I know that most people who watch this show don't agree with me on where I would stand on taxation or private property rights or, gosh, even the criminal justice system. I just know that. We should disagree on policies. What we shouldn't disagree on is the goal of our society, which is what? To make sure people's basic rights are protected and preserved, that society is more fair than not, that, you know, the marketing materials for this country, inalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Can we start there? We've got to get back to the point where we say we care about that for everyone. And we're getting to the point, and I, this is the one thing I do see a both sides legitimacy to, where there's starting to be this questioning of whether the other side represents uh, or deserves life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, or not. I don't know how to kind of call people home on the right. And I don't want to paint over, wallpaper over, the fact that life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness sure didn't apply to Native and Indigenous people, and it sure didn't apply to slaves brought in from Africa. We can't ever try to pursue this until we're honest about the fact that we've never really applied these ideals equally in the country. But if you look at the framing of America as I understood it as a child, that the goal of this country was to extend those rights universally to all people, gosh, that's something I can get behind. And I could have some very passionate disagreements with people who have other ideas about taxation, other ideas about legalization of controlled substances, other ideas of um, what immigrants are legally allowed into the country and which ones are not than I do. But if the same goal there was to create a just society together, we could have those disagreements and we could resolve it with elections. We're in a system right now where political elites, and Donald Trump is one of them, no matter how much anti-elite language he uses, he is by definition now a political elite, They use our disagreements and the things we care about to keep us at each other's necks while they pocket power and wealth in the country. We've got to figure a way to come together and admit something. The vast majority of us, we have more needs in common than we have different. Our needs are actually much more aligned than we realize. Okay. Brandon O'Connell says, Election adjacent, how to emotionally and mentally handle close people being seduced by dangerous conspiracies like QAnon. This is even harder to navigate when it's being amalgamated, 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 amalgamated with poor eschatology, crying emoji. You have such a serious question and then you put a word in it that I cannot pronounce. So I'm so sorry for laughing because this is. At the same time I'm laughing, I feel like a little uh, tear duct activation as the sadness I felt was interrupted uh, by the silliness of not being able to say a word. 
Um, I'm not going to pretend here um, that getting people out of conspiracy theories is easy. It's not. Uh, people are drawn to comp- conspiracy theories when they have some perceived sense of marginalization, some perceived sense of ostracization. Um, and so, you know, when people watch fear-based media, it, it, it makes media companies money to keep you afraid and angry. Those are highly neurologically arousing states. And when we're neurologically aroused, we pay attention. We pay attention. Advertisers see more impressions and companies make money. So media all over the United States, all over the political spectrum, peddles fear and anger to get us to pay attention. It is especially acute for some time. On outlets like Fox News, Fox News kind of pioneered truly angry media. Well, the problem is when you kind of keep people in that chronically overstimulated, over neurologically aroused state, they start to feel marginalized. You know, if you think about, for example, the tremendous electoral influence white evangelical Christians have in the United States, it's incredible when compared to the percent of the population white evangelicals make up. Compared to how much policy influence they have, wow, wow. And yet, many evangelicals feel like what? They're an oppressed group that are under attack. Why? Because media makes money by keeping evangelicals kind of pumped up fear and anger. They're coming for Christmas. They're coming for your religious freedoms. Oh, my gosh, we've been asked not to meet in a pandemic and wear masks. It's because they're going to take away our a right to worship, just like they do in China. Like, I used to be in that world. I get how scary it is. So when you have that perceived sense of vulnerability and fear, conspiracy theories come in and they they give you a sense of empowerment because you get secret knowledge. That's why conspiracy theories are seductive. You're in the know and other people are not. And then you get a sense of social belonging because you're now part of the people who get it. So you get like moral outrage, you get a sense of superiority, and you get social belonging. And that feels good to human psychology. So like, I'm sorry, QAnon makes all the sense in the world from a psychological perspective. It makes total sense that people get pulled in by QAnon. It makes total sense they become anti-vaxxers. It makes total sense that I don't know how many tens of thousands of people today believe that the earth is flat, but it's a significant movement, and it makes total psychological sense. And you cannot talk or prove or convince someone out of a conspiracy theory or kind of similarly a cult. It requires tremendous relational work and support over time, a non-judgmental posture, a lot of listening. It's hard work. And I want to be really careful here. If these people are close to you and you care about them and they're into conspiracy theories, be careful not to kind of go into a savior complex. A lot of people who struggle with codependency, they will see someone in that state and want to rescue and want to help. And kind of the best way you can help those people is take care of yourself and stay psychologically whole and healthy and balanced. You might have to set up some boundaries with these friends. And I don't mean persecute them or ostracize them. I mean create the space you need to be mentally well in your own life. 
to be emotionally whole. And then as you do your own work on yourself, then you might have the space for some, some conversations that are mostly listening and asking questions. One of the best things you can do to help someone understand the, the gaps in thinking that come with conspiracy theories is not to tell them the truth, but to ask them questions. Oh, really? And just keep pulling the thread until they kind of get self-referentially kind of start to see the gaps in their own worldview. Just questions, not judgmental questions, not like a prosecutor, just questions. Now that said, it is actually really important with QAnon and other conspiracy theories that we respond with facts as quickly as we can on social media. And the goal here is not to convince the poster. It doesn't help. But when you reply with a factual source immediately after misinformation or conspiracy theories are posted, it reduces the likelihood of other people being pulled into these movements. So although the work of getting people back from QAnon is going to be long-term, multi-year effort, we can reduce the number of people who enter things like QAnon by responding quickly, patiently, and then not engaging any more deeply to misinformation we see in social media with cited facts, high-quality information. What a wonderful question, Brandon. Uh, thank you. Ethan Morrow said, how has our two-party political system uh, or has our two-party political system always been so polarized? Not always. No, not always. Has it been this polarized before? Absolutely. Polarization is measurable. It changes over time. And uh, we reach points of, uh, if you kind of look at politics as a game theory where the set of an underlying incentives either encourage or discourage um, cooperation across parties. Now, it is kind of strange to me that the United States one thing that kind of all the founding fathers agreed on was that political parties were bad and that two-party systems were the worst. So they tried to set up a constitution. You'll notice that there's no like majority minority leader in the language for the Senate and the Constitution. There was no idea there'd be two parties in the Senate. Um, a lot of the kind of tradition is formed because we very quickly sorted into two political parties. At first, I believe it was the Federalists and the Democratic Republicans, if I'm remembering my Hamilton correctly. And then those parties shifted and changed over time. We had a, an American Whig party for a while, W-H-I-G, pretty wild. Um, but the math underneath our system kind of automatically produces two parties over time. We're going to dig into that again in a future episode. Um, but based on the cultural conditions, polarization can be good for individual politicians and good for parties while being generally pretty bad for the country. Polarization doesn't tend to lead us to good places over the long term. Now, don't hear me wrong. What I'm not saying is that we should like hold hands and all agree. Conflict and disagreement is essential to societal growth and change, right? Um, it wasn't because the two parties were unified that we had the civil rights movement. <laughs> Okay, there's always a necessity for grassroots advocacy and organizing and change movements, but those aren't necessarily existing within the two-party framework. In fact, we understand through political science, they should not. The more they get tied to a party, the less successful that they are. But when the parties themselves get polarized, 
the attention gets taken off the issues people are facing and then red versus blue political Super Bowl and we get focused on the political system itself and not the outcome of that system. We get focused on who's winning and then, well, gosh, you know what? There was a lot of political polarization before we had a civil war, right? So polarization is not a measure of health in a society like ours. And there have been seasons when we have been more or less polarized, but we have certainly been even more polarized than we are right now in the past. Great question, Ethan. I think we'll do like maybe one more because I'm seeing, I'm trying to keep an eye on the clock here. Um, this is a good question. Um, there's a lot of good questions. There's one, um, Tanner Roberts said, what do we think the likelihood is of this creating a split in the right? Uh, I think there's a decent probability that we are going to get uh, a period where centering Trump has negative, it's possible as negative electoral college, electoral consequences for the party. It could end up costing um, the GOP, the Senate this cycle. Um, and if it starts causing lost elections, um, it's going to get complicated, but don't hear me wrong. I actually think we've got a pretty likely split uh, in the Democratic coalition as well. We've got kind of a, an uneasy alliance right now between some centrist neoliberals and some uh, progressive left-leaning people, and that's as uneasy a marriage as kind of the white nationalist Trumpists as uh, you know low-tax libertarians. We've got these four kind of coalition groups in the country that have been glommed in two parties. And then, you know, we have these political alignments. Why do we have political alignments with parties in the United States? Because there's more than two ways to look at an issue. And it's really artificial to divide the country into two groups. It's ridiculous. So my hope, I think there's like a terrifying path and there's a hopeful path. And my hopeful path moving forward is we start to talk about the ways that we um, get screwed over by the two-party system. Like, we genuinely all get screwed over by the two-party system. It drives me crazy. Listen to me. It drives me crazy how much black voters end up supporting the Democratic Party and how little they get in return. Why do black voters overwhelmingly support the Democratic Party? Because the Republicans are courting white nationalists. It takes away any sense of choice and agency from black Americans, and it drives me crazy, right? What political alliance Does a, a, a non-religious multimillionaire who wants lower taxes have with evangelical Christians? Why are these the political coalitions? So what I'd like is uh, we look, we're like polarization's making us all miserable. It's destroying the country. None of us are happy. Everyone's getting less buying power in the economy. This isn't working for anyone. What I'd love for us to do is realize we don't belong in two parties. And maybe we could create a nonpartisan, broad coalition movement to take a sledgehammer to the mechanisms of governance in our society that force us into two parties, empowering two groups, 
political elites and the people who fund them, right? Because that's what the two-party system is doing. Donald Trump got richer the last four years. Jeff Bezos got richer the last four years. Most of us are really struggling. It's because they hand us a form that says multiple choice, pick A or B, and there's more choices than that. And there should be more choices than that. So, you know, if you have the instinct or the tendency when people talk politics to back away because you're tired of partisanship, friends, I'm tired of partisanship. And the reason I want to talk about politics on the Cozy Robot Show is because I believe in empathetic skepticism. I have empathy for all people in this country. I have empathy for all people over the world. And when I critically look at our politically structure, I just notice we spend a lot of time and energy shouting at each other. Well, Mitch McConnell laughs all the way to the bank. And Gavin Newsom, the Democratic governor of California, hosts a fancy birthday party at the most expensive restaurant in California during a pandemic. And I'm sick of it. Here's what I want us to do together. Realize something remarkable. We have all the power and we loan it to them. And we, if we work together and we don't let them manipulate us, can change the very framework by which American government is organized. Because if there's something I have in common with members of QAnon, it's that I'm not satisfied with what America is today or where America is going. We can do better. And the way we do that, friends, is by talking about politics and then becoming politically active. You're here, and I so appreciate you joined in for an episode of the Cozy Robot Show to talk about politics and political things. And I'd just like to say that this show is made by the most talented and supportive team of people in the entire world. So I'd like to thank the people who make the show possible, like each and every Cozy Robot, the people who send us a subscription of money every month or every, yeah, every month to help fund the show. When you do that, you get to be a part of the Cozy Robot community on Discord, where it's like the internet with all of the meanness. We share art and culture. And 10 minutes after the show is over, we're going to get together and have an after party. I'm looking forward to seeing Cozy Robots there. Our producers are Tanner Hearn, Victory Palmazama, and Greg Nordine. Music by Madison McCarg and Macy McCarg. Production support by Andrew Galucky, social media manager Grace Fawn. Production support and my assistant is Caitlin Hermstad, designed by Sydney Smith, motion graphic design by Landon Satterfield, set design by Jesse Lane Interiors, wardrobe stylist and craft services, Jenny McCarg. You know, that's my wife, and <laughs> that's kind of a joke. Those are industry terms. But when I walked in wearing this shirt tonight and it was all wrinkly, Jenny was like, you cannot go on camera wearing that shirt like that and fixed it up. So, Jenny, thanks for uh, helping me look great. And feel great. Anyway, everyone, thank you so much for joining us tonight. And I just can't wait to see you again next week. Take care, friends. The Cozy Robot Show.